Welcome to the special Innovation Forum podcast. I'm Ian Welsh. We are publishing some of the highlights from our spring event series over the coming weeks. At Innovation Forum's recent Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference, my colleague Toby Webb moderated a session where the discussion focused on what the apparel sector can learn from living income programmes in other sectors. We join the session just as Toby is introducing the topic and panel. Just a note of clarification before we start, it's important that we differentiate living incomes from living wages. You know, a family farm needs a living income, but a worker in a factory perhaps a living wage is more important to them. And I know there's some there's some crossover there in certain parts of the world. It's, you know, people doing different part-time jobs and so on. It's, it's very complicated. I think living income slash wages is as complex as any other area in sustainability and more than some. So looking forward to hearing two great perspectives here from Renko Karwinhoven from Fairphone. And he'll tell you a bit about Fairphone if you haven't heard of it. Great products. And then Anke Ehlers is here from Aldi Sud, a brand you will be, I'm sure, familiar with. And we're going to ask them both to talk uh, for a, few, a number of minutes about what they have learned about this topic in their particular areas of work, and then to offer some thoughts on what they've learned could be relevant for the apparel sector. So looking forward to that. Anke, why don't we start off with you? And um, if you want to mention a bit about what you do in the areas that you, you look after, that, that's great. So welcome and uh, over to you for some initial thoughts. Thank you so much, Toby, and thanks for having me today. So, uh, we are one of the biggest global retail companies. Uh, we have stores in 11 countries on four continents, and um, we are selling textiles. So that's why, obviously, I feel also kind of home in this conference. At the same time, we are also about 80% of our products are food products. So for us, obviously, living wage is a journey in all different kinds of products and supply chains. We have, I think, quite a good comparison between the challenges and learnings out of the textile sectors. And I'm also happy today to actually share some thoughts and some insights about what we have so far uh, managed in some agricultural supply chains. Maybe to start there, so um, we as a company, we are active in 11 countries, but our roots are in Germany. That's also one of our biggest markets together with uh, the US. We actually last, no, it's already two years ago, so 2020, we have actually signed a voluntary self-commitment to ensure living income and living wages in all our agricultural supply chains until 2030, which is obviously a very aspirational and strong commitment. We have been entertaining and um, involved in several initiatives. And I think the IDH is a very, very important uh, player, actually, especially in the agricultural supply chains and living wage activities, but also in, for example, the German Partnership for Sustainable Textiles, we are involved in living wage labs. So there are a couple of different initiatives and activities we are doing. And I think in terms of the journey and the steps, I think all of us uh, that have looked into the topic are very, very familiar with what you need to do in order to implement living wages or living incomes. You have to identify actually um, the gap, you have to measure the gap, you have to verify the calculations on the gap, and you have to then obviously the biggest part of it, close the gap and then also share learnings. And I think that's, to be honest, very, very similar also in the food sector. Currently, we have tried to improve or get to living wages in four different commodities or supply chains, in coffee, in cocoa, in banana, and textiles. And I don't know, Toby, if you want me now already to dive into one particular case study, which would be banana. Yeah, let's do that. 
I think everyone knows what a banana is. And uh, I think that's actually um, what we have done there, uh, I think is quite an interesting uh, journey to share today. I mean, banana, I would say compared to textiles um, is a quite simple supply chain because the raw material actually is the final product. So that's already, I think, a very, very um, important thing to understand. And that's also already a reason why this is potentially an easier um, journey uh, getting to living wages compared to textiles, for example. And what we tried there is actually to close kind of the loop uh, when it comes to all the different activities and um, partners to involve um, in trying to achieve and closing the living wage gap. Um, so uh, what happened uh, 2020 um, after we signed this commitment on our agricultural supply chains was that actually a working group um, that actually contains all relevant big German retail players um, got together. So this, um, um, all the retailers represent about 85% of the German market share, which I think is already very important. So these retailers got together and um, they have a facilitator um, um, who is the GIZ, um, the German uh, Development Agency that sits with the German Development Ministry. And they are our neutral coordinator, and um, which I think, I mean, similar to, I guess, ACT, um, they are um, they're ensuring that there is a safe and a pre-competitive space um, established. Um, and what I think compared and a key difference to what ACT has so far, um, 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 how they approached the topic is that we not only agreed on shared and time-bound targets, but also on commercial targets. So um, we have committed to use the same tools um, and also to implement responsible uh, purchasing practices. But in addition, we have committed to commercial targets um, so that in next year, uh, all of us, um, have to make sure that 7% of the German volume of bananas that enter the market have to be the so-called living wage banana. So um, this is the commitment and the commitment goes up to actually 50% by 2025. And we as a group have to ensure that this volume is entering the German market. Um, and how are we doing it? Um, we actually selected one sourcing country as a pilot, which is Ecuador. And the 7% I just mentioned for next year is actually exactly the volume that the German retailers are sourcing from Ecuador. That means all the volume that the German market will get out of Ecuador has to be kind of um, produced, harvested, farmed according to living wages. Um, and I think what was already a very, very important element um, to make this possible is that the Dutch retailers um, have been actually front runners in this kind of sector approach. And we are actually currently trying to convince also the UK market. Um, Tesco is already um, the first committed retailer and they have already started the journey. And um, I think this has been extremely um, um, crucial and essential to have this positive market pressure also on the sourcing countries. Um, because obviously all of us share similar as the textiles. We all work together with um, actually the same um, production facilities. So now when it comes to the farming level, we also share farms. And we also share sourcing countries. So the higher the volume gets um, of these kind of living wage bananas and how they higher the demand, obviously the higher also the incentives for um, um, farmers, producers to actually um, get, um, yeah, get involved into closing the living wage gap. 
So maybe a little bit more in detail, um, we have um, used the IDH salary matrix, uh, which is actually used to calculate the living wage gap in detail. So there's this one tool used by all retailers. Um, we also make sure that we use the same trainings for the producers and also for the auditors the verification, the, for the verification. So uh, I think that's a very important element. Um, we use actually um, a benchmark methodology, um, um, which is based on the anchor method. Um, and what we also already did is we took the um, verification bodies on board. Um, in case of bananas, it's the Rainforest Alliance and Fairtrade. So they are the main um, and the key standards. And um, they have to then ensure that um, based on the defined um, um, benchmarking method methodology, the living wage gap um, and the closure of the living wage gap is actually verified. And I think also being a group of retailers uh, that have those commercial commitments made it easier to create also the demand uh, with regard to certification bodies, because uh, I think all of us understand that it's not sometimes easy to convince certification bodies and auditing schemes to make this actually a mandatory and also I would say from a quality point of view, um, uh, an integral part of their, um, um, of their process. Um, we have the GIZ local offices uh, right now in Ecuador, but in the future also other mainly Latin American countries to support and guide the process. And um, what we still also have the same challenges as we have in the textile sector, how to really pay the living uh, wage, how to close the gap, um, how do we actually deal with social unrests uh, when one farm gets a higher salary um, um, than the others, um, and how to also within um, a farm, um, when there are different salary groups, um, how to actually um, make sure that um, this is not backfiring um, to us. Um, so right now, different um, scenarios are actually piloted um, this year, how to handle situations. Um, and we also have to actually recognize that in Latin American countries, when you, um, as for example, a, a, um, a farm owner, start to pay a premium, uh, when you have it done once, you cannot take it away from the workers. That means we also have to ensure a continuity of our assessing partners, um, which is obviously a challenge, um, maybe even more challenging compared to the textile industry because harvest um, and hurricanes, for example, um, make it sometimes very, um, like there's a high volatility actually in, in our sourcing connections. So this is something we just have to work proactively with. Um, uh, and we do this uh, with introducing a pool of living wage farms um, that actually are big enough to ensure our availabilities. And when, for example, there are some weather incidences to, to be able to still uh, ensure um, um, our um, quantities. Uh, but we also make sure that we safeguard the producers not to become uncompetitive and lose partners. Um, so we all introduce this product um, and we understand it will have a price impact. But as we, as a market uh, facing the consumers, um, um, uh, we will all have the same actually challenge that our retail price has to go up. Um, it's actually easier for all of us. Um, 
And um, yeah, I think that's that's to me now also looking into what are the key les lessons learned and also looking to the challenge that the textile industries is facing. I think uh, still from my point of view, textile is kind of, uh, the, has been the, 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 uh, the industry in the sector that first started this. And I think we also learned quite a lot from what has happened there so far. Um, we have to recognize, especially bananas, for example, is an easier market. It's more concentrated compared to textiles. Um, and um, I think what really was for us the breakthrough is this uh, one market goes together um, and we all have actually committed ourselves to the commercial targets. Um, and we are also now trying to actually um, take other um, markets. As I mentioned, Netherlands is already there. UK is now just uh, we are trying to, to um, uh, motivate them um, onto this journey. Um, I also have to say we have, um, when, I, when I look into the sourcing countries, uh, we have much better organized sector organizations, which is also, I think, so a huge challenge in the textile industry. And also trade unions are much stronger. Um, and we have, let's say, more professionalized, um, let's say, counterparts that we and also the GRZ actually can talk to to facilitate the process. So I think that also needs to be understood that every sector and every industry is, is different. And I think in this case, it has been easier when it comes to the banana. So maybe that's just, you know, to, to give you a little bit of an idea about what we have been doing so far and what are challenges, but also maybe um, potential uh, solutions um, for the textile sector. Thank you, thank you. I have so many questions, um, but the audience are the customers. And so I'll turn to them in a minute to ask theirs before I, I get mine in if, if the others are not coming. But let's hear from, from Remco next. Remco, very different industry. Uh, for those of you who don't know Fairphone, perhaps Remco, you could just give us the, the brief overview and then your experience of of really, I think you, you guys were sort of a bit like Tony's Chocolate Only before Tony's existed <laughs> for a different industry, um, you know, trying to, trying to change the industry with a whole new model. Um, so really keen to hear about the journey and also, you know, lessons you feel can be learned for, for another sector. Remco. Sure, thanks, Toby. Well, I think you did the introduction already of Fairphone, right? Um, no, but in, in, in an essence, uh, uh, Fairphone, uh, we offer a smartphone, so electronics products. And uh, indeed, uh, Fairphone is a social enterprise, so we offer a smartphone, but we also have a social mission that has to make the whole electronics industry more sustainable by raising awareness to issues, uh, seeking leadership solutions, and then seeking partnerships to scale up solutions so that the whole industry can become more sustainable. Uh, and the smartphone is for sale. Um, it is actually one of the, it's the only modular smartphone that you can repair yourself, for example, uh, designed to last five years, even now with a guarantee, a hardware guarantee for five years and software support for longer terms. Um, and of course, uh, we're looking at uh, where the materials uh, come from and uh, what the labor conditions are. So I'm gonna share a bit more our efforts when it comes to living wage, obviously. Um, so Fairphone has supported living wage with two direct suppliers, uh, and we're supporting also living income through unconditional cash transfers to uh, mining communities. Um, I'll focus a bit today on uh, uh, living wage in the factories. Um, a smartphone is perhaps 
slightly more complicated products than uh, let's say uh, the, the average fashion products. Um, but the supply chains are not that different. I've worked actually in the textile industry before also. Um, and a lot of the dynamics are similar. So uh, um, the uh, factories are um, uh, suppliers in their own rights. Uh, it's not vertically integrated uh, and you have many customers at the same site. So you're one of many. Um, to give you a bit of an indication, uh, at the factories where Fairphone is uh, supporting a living wage, uh, one factory we have between five to 10% of their annual production capacity. And in the other factory, we have about 1% of their total capacity. So we're actually a small customer. Um, Fairphone was the first electronics company to support a supplier. We've started doing that uh, uh, in 2019 um, and we're paying a bonus. We've calculated what is indeed uh, uh, a living wage, what is a target wage, uh, and then what is the premium per phone if we were to uh, uh, pay a product price that enables living wages. And that's about two US dollars per phone approximately. And that calculates to 0.3% of the retail price. So we think that is a uh, price that consumers can uh, accept uh, when buying a smartphone. Um, and I think uh, the, 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 I'll, I'll, I won't uh, go into all the details of, of the setup, but it's in a similar vein to uh, the approach that Fairware has and that uh, other uh, textile companies have also uh, piloted or ran uh, in, in, in previous years. Uh, we base our share uh, on the labor time spent on our products. So we don't pay the full living wage gap for the entire factory, but we look at how much labor is spent on our products and that's, we compensate the gap. Um, and I think if we look back on the last couple of years and the lessons learned that we have is, um, we can make an impact regardless of our small size, we are making an impact. So um, we have, in the last three years, been able to get uh, close to half a million US dollars to factory, uh, factory workers, uh, closing the living wage gap on average by 8%. Um, but we've skewed the distribution a little bit so that some of the lowest paid workers get more bonus. So in their case, the living wage gap was closed by up to 20 or 24% even. Um, to put it in perspective, that's like one to three months of extra salary. Uh, so imagine that if, if you are struggling to pay your bills, if you're having to choose, shall I buy medicine or shall I buy food? And somebody offers you a wage increase of eight to 20%, one to three months of extra salary, that's massive. That's, that's a big impact when it comes to uh, quality of life. And we have seen also in that factory uh, that uh, satisfaction increased on uh, wages, uh, even during COVID periods, uh, which was uh, 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 very much against the trends in the, in the wider industry. Um, so that's one lesson, you can make an impact, even if you're small. And um, the other lesson that we've had is to uh, really involve workers. So we have 
sense checked living wage estimates with workers um, and we have uh, involved them or their representatives in also designing the distribution method. We've been flexible to allow different setups uh, at different factories, uh, for example, uh, who gets the bonus uh, and how often is it paid out on a monthly basis or quarterly basis. Um, that's the kind of questions where it's really helpful to get workers' perspective in there to ensure that workers perceive it as fair, that workers understand indeed that, hey, this is uh, a fair setup. Even if I don't get a bonus, uh, I understand why other people get it. So you get the positive impact at its maximum and you avoid jealousy, frustration or potential negative impacts. Um, be flexible is, is another lesson. So um, I mentioned it already. Um, per factory, it might differ a little bit how they would prefer to distribute the bonus to which workers uh, and in which way. Uh, but as long as it makes impact to lowest paid workers, we're fine with it. That's the, the, the key thing. Um, and communication is important. So um, to also note the comment made by Anke earlier, um, if you pay higher wages, uh, it is important that workers understand how and why that bonus exists. So we've been careful to ensure that it's communicated as a bonus from a customer, as a fair fund bonus or a customer bonus uh, based on our production volumes. Um, so that workers indeed, and because this is a factory management concern, they don't expect, even if we would drop out of the factory for whatever reason, uh, they understand that the bonus is linked to our production and not to um, fixed working conditions uh, terms. Um, and I think in general, uh, I have actually had quite some inspiration also from uh, the textile industry and there's a lot of uh, good initiative going on. Um, advice would be to uh, still reach out to other industries. There's a lot that we can learn from each other and that can accelerate uh, uh, yeah, the learnings that we have and accelerate uh, implementation. Um, I have, with because in electronics, <laughs> there is no one else doing this so far. I've actually been in a lot of uh, networks with companies from all kinds of industries, and it's super helpful to share uh, experiences because a lot of the dynamics are similar and a lot of the solutions are also similar. So there's a lot we can learn. Um, and I would recommend to look at uh, common impact indicators. So how do you measure impacts? Um, it is important that we move the um, conversation uh, of living wages as solely a cost to uh, much more measuring it and presenting it as an opportunity as a business case um, where the, the cost of inaction is actually much higher. Um, to do that or to make it easier it is super helpful if everybody has similar impact indicators, shares them and to help build that business case. There's case studies out there, but uh, um, yeah, the more data that we can use, uh, the easier and the stronger the business case also becomes. Um, yeah, so I'll stop here and uh, I'll give the floor back to you, Toby. 
Thanks, Remco. Some very solid advice there. Some good stuff coming in the chat as well. I posted a couple of resources that we uh, published uh, recently on, on farmers and cross-commodity learnings because there's still a huge silo problem in, in agricultural commodity supply chains. And then our apparel barometer uh, last year looked at some of these issues as well in great depth. So they, that's all free. You can just download it and it's all proper business research. So Adrian, Adrian Greet, hello, nice to see you again. Well, will be when you appear. I'm gonna bring you in now, Adrian, because you had a couple of points or questions which I would ask you to put in person, if you don't mind, Adrian. Are you there? Too many buttons, Toby. Too many buttons <laughs> to have to press. Hello, everyone. Thank you. Um, some, some really interesting conversations, and I very much appreciate um, you taking the time to share them. Um, I, I'm trying to remember which, what the two questions were, but I think the, the first one maybe uh, to you, uh, and Fairphone. Um, I think it's really good that you've sort of addressed mathematically your own supply chain. But is it... You know, is is this influencing other off takers from those factories, particularly where you're like the one percent, uh, or even the ten percent? Is everyone else taking the same approach? Um, I would hope they were, but I'm, I'm, I would guess there's a lot that are not. Um, and equally, you know, if you there fix your own supply chain, is it still okay to be part of a, an industry that actually isn't lifting the bottom and ensuring that a hundred percent of those workers are getting a living wage? So, you know. I'm pretty sure that the next BBC Panorama programme would celebrate what you're doing, but make the point, you know, you're not actually, they don't actually get a living wage, they get a percentage of a living wage. So this, we haven't ticked the box, as it were. How is that, how is that working locally? Sure, thanks for your questions, Adrian. Um, the first question is, are there uh, uh, other uptakers? So here's also, um, this is an idea that 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 is very important to us. So uh, in the end, we don't want our supply chain just to be super sustainable, uh, but we want actually the rest to also follow. So, um, for example, with the second supplier that we've now implemented this uh, direct suppliers, mind you, um, we have um, accepted let's say, to use a bit more of their standard calculation to calculate their, uh, uh, the labor time spent, yeah? the, the, the standard way that they calculate FTEs for product pricing and for uh, HR planning, etc. So we didn't go as detailed as, for example, the IDA salary matrix. Uh, but the positive side of that is that it does allow them to calculate the uh, premium for any product for any other customer, because it it takes them 30 seconds to do it for yeah. any other customer. And um, that setup allows them to scale it up also easily. Um, have there been any others? So far, not yet. So far, not yet. But we're working on it. And I think uh, in, when, when it comes to uh, making innovations in supply chains uh, uh, where we are in the electronics industry is that uh, Fairphone is now inspiring we're showing that it can be done and we're moving into the scaling up phase um, so we are definitely working on on that and there is yeah. interest in it let's say um, your second question was um, regarding uh, the impact so um, I'll, it's a little bit more of a complicated story so I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it as easy uh, as I can explain it um, when you 
pay the premium for your labor time spent. Uh, essentially, what you do is you would be able to allow every worker on the fair from production lines to earn a living wage in full. So we're paying that part. Uh, that's what we're uh, contributing. But in the distribution, we have asked workers and factory management and ourselves, is that desirable? Is it desirable that there's one or two production lines where workers get a much higher wage, two to three times higher than workers on other production lines who do the same work? Um, and workers consistently year after year keep saying, no, we would, uh, if you have to choose between a small group getting a big bonus or a big group getting a small bonus, workers consistently every time opt for share the bonus with everyone, even if that means it's a small bonus. Um, so that's what we do. So the, the bonus, uh, that 8%, uh, it gets distributed to all the workers, uh, uh, low paid workers below a living wage or below a certain uh, wage uh, target, uh, regardless what they do, regardless if they work on yeah. our production line or not. Okay, I think I understand it, but my, my concern is it's, it, it, I mean, I, it's I really laudable what you're doing. I think it's great, but essentially you're offsetting or mass balancing a social issue. I don't think you can do that in the same way as you can with things like carbon. So in reality, a worker in your supply chain is not earning a living wage. Correct. You're paying the amount of money Correct. that Correct. should enable anyone, if they were 100% working for you, to achieve a living wage. Yeah. But we haven't actually lifted them out of poverty or lifted them onto a living wage. It's the right direction. I think you said that. I think it's a case of what else is needed from us as a sector, from us as a society, and probably to work with the local governments and governments to move towards this being much more regulatory as approach and to help get everyone that bottom so I, I think it's great but I, I do feel we're drifting down this road of uh you know almost a mass balance approach on social things which I think is a much harder conversation to manage I I, I, I I understand your point I disagree that it's a mass balance uh we're not just offsetting it we are making impacts and the question is what do you need to enable everyone to earn a living wage that was the next sentence I was planning to say is we would need all the customers of the factory exactly. to pay an inclusive product price. Yeah. And then 100% of the factory workers would earn 100% of a living wage or higher. Um, so that's a, a journey that is not likely to happen in the short term, in the next 12 months. Um, but that's it's and, and, and a great my, segue, actually. It's not an either or, because I think you're right to say you need industry uh, efforts. You need also to have a look at uh, governments or uh, um, uh, uh, common uh, industry agreements, bargaining agreements to also refer to. But it's not an either-or choice. I think it's an end-end that you offer one a price that is inclusive. Actually, yeah, the true price kind of discussion where you include all the social and environmental externalities that are now not included yet in product price. And two, that you try, also try to do it uh, uh, via the, the existing other collective common ways. So, and, and, and I think in the textile industry, there is ACT, for example, which is a way to organize it. I think the example that Anke also gave is also a way to 
um, channel uh, collective efforts towards uh, uh, addressing living wages. So there's there's different ways to do it, but I, uh, I, I from my perspective, it's it's an end end effort and not an either or. Yeah, I to, to bring Anka in here. Um, Anka, I can remember the days when the banana industry was announcing deals with the International Union of Food Workers what, 20 odd years ago, looking at these issues, and, and things have moved on since then. How much of what you've just heard reflects experience in the banana industry? Because it strikes me there are many overlapping um, themes here. I just wondered what your reflections were on, on the last 10 minutes. No, I think, I, I mean, again, as, as I understand the production facility situation as well as the farm um, situation, I think it's a very similar challenge. And, and what you just described, um, just trying to make sure that the whole industry is moving, I would say it comes down to what I mentioned before, actually basically from an, let's say, market um, point of view, in one retail market, actually almost everyone should make this kind of commitment because otherwise you just lose out from an, from a customer point of view. So before the whole working group actually was established uh, two years ago, there was a huge kind of situation where, you know, some retailers had very aggressive retail prices on bananas, others didn't. And there was kind of a lot of um, pressure actually um, within the market. So I think all of us got down to the point to say, hang on, we can just not, you know, go on like this. We just have to do something about it. And I think it was um, that was more or less, uh, I think, uh, the breakthrough point to get to the these kind of um, sector aligned approach in one retail market and commit to commercial targets. Because if you don't do and, and still with even that, it will be a huge challenge to find farms. And obviously, there is no German banana farm in Ecuador, Costa Rica. So you, you still have obviously farms that sell bananas to, uh, you know, so many different countries and retail markets. So that's, that is still a challenge. But I think already the first element was, was crucial to get to the next step. So I, I fully hear actually Remco's comment, but also Adrian's comment. I think it's the question is, if we don't manage as let's say one uh, world community of consumers, retail companies, brands to get to this living wage commitment. So what's then actually, there they will and have to be different approaches. And it is, I guess, a step-by-step -step journey um, because there is no other way. But I, I, I would say that ACT, from my point of view, has been also more or less a role model and a blueprint for what we now try to establish in the banana sector. So I would say um, um, making sure you focus on certain sourcing countries and involving stakeholders, trade union associations, as well as governments, and let's say local, like local stakeholders into the communication and also the banana sector, the planners, to then obviously hand this process over to local stakeholders, um, the sooner the better, but also they're not, not there yet. Thank you. Um, let's uh, let's see if we have some other comments or questions. Uh, I know Adrian always has lots, uh, as I do. <laughs> so I'll come back to you, Adrian, if, I, if we need to. Um, uh, but uh, Lucy, uh, you've put a couple of things in the chat. Maybe I can ask you to join us on video and make your point. So ask your question. Lucy, welcome. Hello. Hello. Um, Lucy Brill from Homeworkers Worldwide. Um, really interesting and really inspiring to hear these two different approaches of positive progress and I think recognizing how it, you know oldies in a very different place from Fairphone aren't they so, so it, it's great to see um, I guess my question really was about oldie um, was I know that there's a lot of gendered 
yeah, the labour the labour force for bananas, I think, is very heavily gendered, isn't it? So the vast majority of people working on those farms are blokes, especially in Latin America, I think. Um, and I know also that the trade unions actually have been really pushing to change that. And I just wondered if you could say anything about how women workers are involved. You know, I mean, equally, I don't know about bananas, but certainly on other farms, women workers often tend to do the very precarious casualized work, um, you know, not dissimilar to home working paid on a piece rate. How have you, you know, have you included those groups of workers? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's actually uh, yeah, a spot on question. I think obviously gender in all different dimensions especially when it comes to living income, living wage is a huge topic, um, especially when it comes to the question of effectiveness. Um, I think particularly in bananas, at least to, to my understanding, is, is, is it's quite, I mean, um, yeah, if you just imagine the, 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 the plant and the crop and so on, I mean, it's a quite heavy lifting, so it's not really something that that um, um, uh, certain elements of, of uh, let's say, the, the, the farming process is not and the harvesting is not um, it's not really done by by women, but obviously then the whole washing, packing, and so on. So there are different steps um, where different, uh, let's say, but but then the no component is relevant. But if I just now may uh, look into, for example, um, cocoa, um, but also cashews and other 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 crops, you know, obviously then again here, um, um, female, um, yeah, work, labor is is a huge element and. What we understand is if you try to think about, and I think Toby men, men made this comment earlier uh, when we started this discussion about living income and, and living wage. And if you look into, the, and we, when you talk about agricultural supply chains, we talk about actually living income. Um, the concept is different. And then you look into, let's say, family dynamics, the ability to also, for example, diversify, diversify the income of a family. Then obviously there's a huge challenge. Okay, how much are let's say the, is, is a, a woman in the supply chain able to keep the money to make sure that actually it's really also spent in, in the most uh, let's say um, yeah meaningful way when you look into the family kind of uh, dynamics and so on and so forth. So I, I want to say and I think to be honest it would actually be a quite a long discussion for for this for this session mm -hmm. today. But yeah. um, gender is a huge element in it. Um, but to be fair, I think what we've done so far in the working group, and this is definitely, it, it's it's taken care of and it's actually recognized. But I think we are still, I would say, too early in the process to iron out yeah, the gender component when it comes to the banana sector. I think we are at the moment in a situation where we try to make sure that we think about the dynamics across farms. Um, we um, make sure that we involve um, the sector organizations, the local trade unions sufficiently. We make sure that the verification element is done properly. So I think this is still where we are. Um, but it's, I think, um, down the road, another mm -hmm. road, uh, like, yeah, building blog or whatever you call it. Thank you. Um, you'll see from the chat, I've been posting various resources. We published an awful lot on this, and I realise that uh, I'm sure not all of you wake up every morning going, what is Innovation Forum published today that I can spend my day on? <laughs> so uh, we have other things to do, oddly. Um, so uh, I've put some links in there that might be useful. Um, I had a question, for, some questions for you, Anka and Rimko, but I, I want to give space to others uh, who would like to join us. So is there anybody else who wants to ask or say something now? You've all got your screens off, understandably, perhaps. But uh, if any of you want to, you can digitally wave. Um, I had a question for, for you, Anka, and also 
Remco around sort of burden sharing. What we haven't really talked about is here is what what are the views of let's say banana producers that you're buying from or factory owners in your case Remco about this. Can you give us a sense of the direction of travel there? Maybe we start with with Ecuador. Um, I remember the NGOs many years ago weren't suggesting that the Ecuadorian banana company was particularly cuddly um, <laughs> and worker-friendly. So I'm wondering how you feel that's changed. And, and Remco, with regard to the factories you mentioned, good to get a sense of who that factory owner is, where, where they're going, whether or not other brands are pushing in the same direction you are. So maybe Anchor first and, and then Remco on those, on those points. I mean, it, it might sound, I mean, it's really a huge challenge. So what I can, I can share with you is that we are still so much, like, as I mentioned in my initial comment, uh, different to textile, um, the textile industry, um, the sector organizations are very well established and they are also quite professional in the way they, they organize themselves and they are quite unified in their opinion making and in, the, in, in addressing topics to, towards, for example, retail companies. At the same time, they are not very much open. <laughs> so I think now since almost now three years, we, for example, from an individual company point of view, push um, our, um, um, yeah, our um, yeah, exporting partners, um, the producer organizations we work with and our producers to, for example, share, um, have an open book calculation and in detail share all the different elements um, of their calculations and yeah it's it's really uh, not possible so they are very very resistant to share and um, obviously this is one key element where we hope that um, and this is obviously uh, one of the parts that they also need to commit to uh, as part of the sector initiative that this is actually ensured and as then it will not just be Aldi, but it will be all the members of this group that will ask them to do so. Uh, we expect that this will also then happen. But this already shows that they always have kind of, let's say, two faces, right? So on the one hand, um, there is um, uh, there is a lot of um, resistance and a lot of, let's say, tough discussions when it gets, gets to price negotiations and how to do and what to do. And, oh, you always ask so much of us. And how shall we actually make sure that this is all happening? But if you then try to really make a difference, understand the roadblocks, understand the root causes, and try to work with them, then there's quite some intransparency and pushback. So, um, and... As always, there's a lot of politics in, like, involved and a lot of different interests and hidden agendas. So I think that's not really a big difference to, I guess, other, other, other sectors as well. But as said, um, the way we try to overcome this is just being kind of a joint force and showing them with commercial commitments that this is serious and we, we are definitely committed. But they, we need them to open up. We need them to be transparent and also in the end, see the benefit and I think Bunko, I, I, I really love what you said earlier that we need to make we need to also shift our minds towards understanding that this is about actually um, the cost of doing nothing is even higher especially I think in agriculture because what we come from see in cocoa and coffee like especially in, in coffee also one of the reasons right also right now the coffee price is just hiking crazily is that um, it's not at all uh, attractive anymore for the younger generation of farmers to, to stay in their job because the income is just, it's just a joke and they cannot make a living. So they all go to the big cities and do other 
other other work and they're actually basically no farmers and uh, that can actually make sure that uh, we we still can drink our, our, our cup of coffee in the future so it is uh, a question of availability and, and and future supply and secure supply yeah and i guess over time any business buys into a resilience argument when they can see the facts in front of them so it's that sort of slow journey i suppose absolutely um, yeah, got to start somewhere. Um, one very quick follow-up question. I did wonder, have you had any pushback from consumer groups uh, in Germany about pushing up prices together? I mean, American companies would completely freak out at that idea <laughs> with their lawyers breathing down their necks about lawsuits. Has it been an issue? Just briefly. To be honest, to be honest, as, 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 the, let's say, as this joint banana, fair, fair trade banana product uh, is still not... Um, on sale, we have uh, part of our conversations as the retail price. I mean, buying price is one, retail price is obviously the other. And I think we all are clear that, um, um, and I think we still need to find it in a line strategy, how much we will um, ask the consumer to pay for it and how much not. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, also what about communication and so on. I think that's obviously another element, right? I, I assume Fairphone, have, uh, we have a similar situation. like. How much is this just part of something that is kind of a given and should be part of our, let's say, very proposition without really making the customer pay for it? And how much is this something that you have the fat rate banana, the conventional banana, and whatever, the organic banana? So this is still something that has not been fully worked out. But um, let's say my, my understanding would be that I don't see that um, the consumer groups would push back. But consumers, we can see whenever we offer something with a fair trade label, even if it costs the same as a conventional product, the consumer is not buying it because they feel the label tells them it's more, more expensive than others, even though it's the same price, for example, than the, we did already this kind of trials. So there is, it's kind of a, um, yeah. And now with the Ukraine crisis and people being so price sensitive, I think we will have to think twice how we will then, when it comes to the sales and the retail price, how we will deal with it. But still not not uh, not decided yet. Thank you, Remco. Got a few minutes left, but keen to hear your your views on this bit. Um, sure. So I'll just come back to your to your first question. Um, Getting a sense of the factory ownership and the other brands there. You know, to Adrian's point about sort of islands of excellence and not taking everyone with you. Um, yeah, it's a big challenge for a kind of brand like yours, as it is for you know Tony's and others. I just wondered what the what the conversations are at the moment around that sort of thing. So I think um, uh, when you talk to factory management, uh, we really try to present a business case for it also. Um, so we do very much link it to uh, um, worker retention, for example, and uh, worker satisfaction, um, especially if uh, from worker surveys, uh, it shows that wages are among the top priorities for workers to improve affecting their retention. Uh, that is the sentiment where, uh, besides the intrinsic motivation that, that people have, factory management also sometimes have this intrinsic motivation to really want to offer good working conditions. Let, let's not forget that. Uh, but some are also a bit more triggered by a business case. So we do try to yeah, do both. Huh? Uh, uh, show that it's and good for business and good for people. Um, and I think that, that there's, I recognize a little bit what, what you described earlier, Anke, about um, some willingness to work along with it and some, 
challenges to openness about wages, but in general, when we're actually going through, okay, what would be the product price premium? In general, they're fine. Uh, as long as they're, you know, we've have, we have secured the commitment to, to setting up a bonus distribution, then they're, they're fine to share some averages as a minimum. Um, but it's tricky, and I think uh, uh, it's, um, it is a, a sensitive topic because some factories might be a bit afraid to share exactly what their labor cost is as part of product price negotiations. Uh, the open book approach is not embraced by everyone. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance that you need to walk. But, the, yeah, the stronger you can make the business case uh, and, and, and as well in combination with uh, yeah, the, the ethical argument, intrinsic motivation, then it gets easier. Okay, thank you. We've run out of time, I'm afraid. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Anka. Thank you, Remco. And thank you all of you in the audience. Thanks again.